Hello, welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast. It's me, Joe Donoghue, ready to dig into yet another footballing story from this season, uh, which has captivated audiences, albeit from home. Um, There's a particular under-23 angle and and a scouting angle to it as well. Um, If this is your first time listening to the Scouted Football Pod, then welcome. There is a a back catalogue of episodes on previous clubs, players, tournaments, regions, and that you can access right now on whichever podcast or streaming app you're listening on. Um, If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, Glad to know that you aren't sick of these dulcet tones just yet, Uh, but please do consider recommending us to a friend, work colleague, family member, anybody who likes their football. I'm sure there's something in our archive that will enjoy. Um, But let's get into it. Um, First and foremost, the most important thing to do is to introduce my guest this week, and that is none other than The Athletic's Michael Bailey. Uh, Michael is the Norwich City correspondent for The Athletic, and we'll be travelling up and down the country next season, visiting Premier League grounds once again. Uh, as for those of you who aren't aware, Norwich, still under the management of Daniel Farker, were promoted back to the Premier League uh, as champions of the Championship this season. Um, Michael, great to have you on. How are, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, Joe. Thank you very much. I'm uh, looking forward to a few weeks break because it feels like I've been working solidly for two years. So uh, I'll take it. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a joy, actually. Um, and I don't think everyone who's followed him, every club can say that over the past 10 months or so. So uh, I feel appreciative of that. No, definitely. I think sometimes it it can sort of feel a, a little bit of a slog when even when you're a fan. So you know, so you know, covering a club or up and down the country um, as as you do, obviously, will be um will be uh, a real a real task sometimes. But yeah, it's a, a joy sort of is the the impression that I get from Norwich a lot of the time. You know, they're they're a you know a vibrant young football club. Um, well not young in the sense that the club is young rather that they have a very young squad um and you know it's it's been it's been very good sort of watching them uh, in in pieces this season um because i think that the the thing that makes Norwich so entertaining is those individual players you know the the Emmy Buendias the the Max Irons um you know those types of of footballers who who you know Norwich have managed to to keep a hold of but um in terms of you personally um you're, you're obviously working at the Athletic um you've covered Norwich for for about fifteen years or so you know you've you've pretty much seen the ups and downs you know the the highlights and the lowlights as, as high as it can get is sort of a, a a yo-yo Premier League Championship club. Yes, um, I, th- I think I've seen Norwich go up every possible way in the championship uh, from the championship. Um, I'm at this point now where I know how good the last season has been, and I know how difficult the next season to come is because I've seen, I've seen it, um, I've seen it unravel, and I've seen it be bad. But obviously, with maybe two seasons ago, keeping a lot of their principles, uh, I've seen the club look completely lost. And I, I'm seeing them now where there is such a, a clear strategy and identity to what they're doing. But then, you know, from when you when you follow one club for so long, you, you kind of know how fragile everything can be as well. So it's uh, it's been it's been fascinating. Norwich, I, f- I find that there's a lot of um, there's something unique about Norwich in terms of of what they are, where they are, what they look like and, and maybe you know, what they inspire in, in people on the outside, whether that's, you know, like of a shrug of the shoulders <laughs> or, um, you know, bits of their history that, that people have twigged or, or maybe some people see them as a, yeah, as almost like also runs, also runs that maybe you haven't achieved much or are a kind of a, a, a non-entity, but that, that would completely dismiss so much of, what Norwich is and how important it is to a, a county of over an, a million people and mm. 
there's so many Norwich fans who are abroad and who are desperately following the club as well. I think I think you have to come here to kind of appreciate just how big a deal it is. Maybe maybe as big as clubs that would be seen as big clubs, but they're in sort of um, areas where there are lots of clubs around, and and so it's you you have a battle for attention almost. Whereas Norwich don't have that; they have the complete attention of a lot of people who who know this area, and it really is the only thing going on. So there's a lot of uniqueness to Norwich. I think that that inspires a lot of pride in in a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is kind of one of those. I mean, it is. It's a one club city, uh, and and obviously, you know, the big rivalry with Ipswich is, you know, it's Norfolk versus Suffolk, and um, of course, you know, that's that they're two big counties in in, in the United Kingdom, and um, of course, yeah, that's it's gonna it's gonna pull in fans from from all over uh, the county, as you say. Um, in terms of sort of the, the the past season or so, you know, I mean, 2019-20, that was the relegation from the Premier League. But I think the general consensus was that, you know, this was a this was a well-run club. This was a club who had, you know, I mean, f- looking from a purely financial perspective, lots of saleable assets. You know, the Todd Cantwells, I think I saw a new transfer linked to him every week um, in, in, the, in the close season following that relegation. But... You know, the Timu Puki, Emi Buendia, Max Ahrens, Todd Cantwell, you know, the the, the club managed to maintain them, uh, to, to retain them, sorry. You know, was was immediate bounce back a foregone conclusion or, you know, from sort of your your granular view, your granular approach of it, was it was it less of less of a foregone conclusion and more of a, well, we, we're going to have to get this right if we're going to have to pull off what our, our intention was when we came down? Yeah, I think um, I remember distinctly that I went into this, the start of this season, thinking that I was prepared to give them a degree of leeway with how the previous season had ended because they were so clear on what they were having to do. But to give them the leeway of just how bad it got at the end of the Premier League season meant that the expectation had to really be on them come the start of this year. Uh, I remember saying, you know, someone asked me, oh, where do you think Norwich will finish? I was like, well, they should win it. <laughs> they know, yeah. And normally I wouldn't be as bold as that, but it was literally look at the squad and they, they still had Ben Godfrey at that point, but you kind of anticipated that he would probably go. Um, so I, th- I think there was sort of the, for, for me personally, professionally as well, they, they needed that pressure on them because of what, you know, they, they'd been allowed the previous year. I think, um, you know, COVID, in a way, the financial implications of that, again, part of the reason why I felt so confident in in what they should go on to achieve was because there was so much instability everywhere. And a lot of it, and it's kind of the similar this window as well. You, you can you can look at those players and think they're great talents, high value, really important to Norwich, but it's so much about who comes in to buy them. And although there was a lot of speculation, there was never really much concrete interest i think when you when you look at max Aarons and and what you're dealing with is an approach from barcelona to loan him without any obligation to buy him at the end of it you're like well has anyone yeah. got any money here what what is anyone doing <laughs> and so it it flipped maybe more towards the end of that window for me of not whether they were going to go but what state these players would be in in their minds once the window had closed because it was literally no point having Todd Cantwell and Emi Buendia um, particularly um, going into October and November if their heads weren't in it and they're like, oh, I really don't want to be here because then you can be any any kind of great player, but if you've not got your head in it, you're gonna you're not going to contribute properly. And then that did would have then become a major issue. And I think you've seen from just what they've contributed for the rest of the season, a those players got their heads around it themselves, which is a brilliant achievement for those guys. 
Daniel Farker managed the situation incredibly well, given a lot of people were kind of doubting it when he was saying he'd rather play the kit man um, in September <laughs> um, than these players if their heads weren't right. And he literally was dropping them from his squad, which which you know people felt that bridges were being burned in terms of supporters. They were you know were really wary of the situation. Um, and so from that point on, once it was clear that they could get their heads together, I wasn't really worried about January because it, it felt like the momentum would carry them through by that point. But um, that was probably the biggest difficulty. Um, but they, you know, they were handed, they were handed um, an advantage in the way that it was difficult to see who would buy these guys for the money that Norwich probably still wanted to, to pay or to receive for them. And, and the ones who did go, kind of envisaged they would lead I, I felt like they would be reasonably happy to let Jamal Lewis go um, and you know it was almost relatively cheap for sort of 15 to 18 million quid and whether it's the right option for him in Newcastle is a difficult one I think <laughs> with with Ben Godfrey I think that was spot on and you know Norwich got their record fee which was 25 million quid with add-on including the add-on sort of as a package but Everton fans would probably now, although Everton were trying to sort of suggest it was less, I think they would just now look at it and go, oh, 25 million quid for him, yeah. a bonus. And I think a lot of people here at Norwich were saying, well, you know, that's that's great value. And in fact, some people were a little bit disappointed at the time that it was, it was maybe not a bit more. So Norwich had to balance that. But in signing Ben Gibson, they probably had a, a more rounded, complete defender, um, just with less potential. Um, you know, Ben Goffrey will end up being a better player probably than Ben Gibson, but... You know, Norwich's defence improved by recruiting Ben Gibson. Hopefully I've said the right Ben's in the right places there. <laughs> it gets confusing. No, I, I know where you're coming from. I mean, the, the, the sales of Jamal Lewis and Ben Godfrey in particular, you know, that raises sort of £40 million. Um, and I think what we've seen in the past few years in the Championship with the likes of Leeds and Aston Villa being promoted whilst making quite hefty losses, you know, £40 million essentially allows you to be competitive. It, it allows you to, to retain those key players on you know, Premier League wages, essentially, um, or, or sort of bottom half Premier League wages. Um, and it just gives you that little bit of buoyancy, I think, um, which which has probably been quite important to keeping this squad together, who have clearly had their heads in it all game, all season. I think 15 goals, 16 assists for Emi Buendia this season. I mean, it's, it's an incredible return. You know, any, any player who sort of tops 20 goal involvements in a season, you, you have to say, has been exceptional. So for, for somebody to, to get to, to top 30 is just incredible. And, you know, he's 24 now, so so he's just just up to the, the scouted age range. But we, we make honourable exceptions at times like this. And, you know, he, he's just such a, an interesting player. He's, he's an exciting player. Um, I mean, you've, you've spoken to him, Michael. I mean, what is he like as, as a person to, to sit down with, to, to have a chat with? Yeah, I have. He's, um, I think he, th- there's almost two Emmy Buendias in a, in a way. I think there's the, the, there's the one on the pitch who is a bit all over the place. I mean, he's been quite calm in the second half of the season. And I think he's really tried to, you know, um, have that as a perception of him that he, that he's kind of got over some of the more sporadic arm waves and um, frustration mm. and, and almost descent, borderline descent, really, that he, he has exuded at times i do feel that is easier for him when things are going very well um so i i will i will await how that looks next year when you know norwich are going to lose games oh clearly um so but he but he has been outstanding and really well disciplined this year but he he's a he's a firecracker norwich had to tell him really early on to you know you can't if you're going to be substituted you can't immediately throw your arms up in the air because like the head coach is being killed then at that point and i think um 
you could watch him even at this start first part of this season his frustration and when there's no one in the ground you could hear him you know swearing effectively mm. um at, at anything and it is anything it could be a misplace it could be someone not spotting him it could be him misplacing a pass or getting something getting cut out and you, there'd always be this fog that would go over him and you know his teammates would have to bring him back into the room because you could almost lose him um just incredible intensity that he plays with mm. um but but it's in, a, a lot of it's in his head and it doesn't always transpire into intensity of closing down and running um so it's a it's a real difficult manage, managing act and I, I part of me wonders if that is a question mark over him that you know other people look at him off the pitch and or look sorry look at him in games on the pitch and just think i don't know if i can fancy managing him <laughs> because it, it, it you probably have to put a bit into that but then what you get obviously if you nail it is an exceptional footballer i mean there are there are only a handful of players i've seen at championship level who just look so far beyond it um someone like ruben neves a couple of years ago mm. but yeah i think i think emmy this year has looked has looked exactly that himself but then you know off the pitch you get this really sort of softly spoken genuine guy who who will who will smile there's sort of a furrowed brow of folk he's always quite focused but you know he's he's really pleasant shy family orientated um quiet you know he won't be going out anywhere regularly he lives in a village hmm. outside of norwich tucked away he's got two gorgeous children and a lovely partner and everything's so sort of quiet it's such a it's such a contrast to someone who wants to win everything <laughs> you know he wants yeah. to be at clubs norwich is never going to be the height of his ambition he wants to win everything it's just a wonderful thing that he's been called up for argentina and and it could be one of those moments i think where you know, sometimes you throw someone into a situation and you just know they're going to fly. And I, I, I wonder if we might get that with Emmy this summer with Argentina. Um, we'll have to see. But I think um, I think he's a he's a remarkable contrast. And I think sometimes maybe the perception of him from people who just know him on the pitch doesn't really do him justice. But likewise, you know, it probably does as well in terms of <laughs> what you have to deal with with him and how you have to manage him. And you know, he's lucky that he's had such a such a great man manager with him in, in terms of Daniel Farker. Yeah, and I think we'll come on to Daniel Farker in, in a little bit, but I think in terms of man management, you know, having to having to to, you know, that that managing act, that balancing act that you that you discussed, I think not every manager would be able to do that. And I think a lot of the time, you know, coaches are I think in, in the modern day we we sometimes obsess over tactics and and systems and all that. But at the end of the day, football is it's a personal business. It's a very human business. And if as what Daniel Farker was saying at the beginning of the season, you know, if you can't get a player of Emi Bondia's caliber to, to to start firing, then that's going to massively negate the to you know the the efforts of the team. Um, but on the flip side, if you can get him firing, then the, the results are there: thirty-one goal involvements in a title-winning campaign. It's you know, and I think that yeah, that there should be more focus on that. Um, and I think I mean I, I I can't imagine how you must feel, but you know I I'm overjoyed that he's. He's he's been given that Argentina call up because it's it's deserved. I think it's been a long time coming. I think he got not bad rep. I think he got very good rep uh, in the Premier League. But there was a there was that question mark over oh well he's only scored one goal and that was towards the end of the campaign. 
but I mean, he was consistently one of the players in the in the top division in in in, you, in one of the best divisions in Europe. He was consistently creating chances for a team who, for for all intents and purposes, were probably a little bit understaffed for that division. So I think you know the the quality has always been there, and I think you know Daniel Farker being able to 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 get the best out of him um, has been you know it's it's probably been one of the major subplots to this season, at least from my perspective, um, from somebody who doesn't watch Norwich every week. Um, but sort of, you know, in, in terms of contrasts, um, the, the next player that I think we should probably discuss is is Ollie Skip because his story has been one of Norwich City's season. You know, he has been whenever I've I've sort of accidentally found myself on Norwich Twitter, I see a lot of Norwich fans sort of, you know, going Ollie Skip is he's the truth, he's the future, all of this. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> I never saw that at Spurs, but clearly that there are times when players just they find the niche and they find that 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 role in a team which which really helps them thrive has that sort of been the the case with with him at Norwich yeah he's a really interesting one i mean I, I feel like i've said so many good things about him in recent weeks that but that can be taken that can be taken the wrong way because i think <clears throat> what you've got there is um a young guy who really desperate to play regular football and hadn't done it so you don't entirely know what you're going to get. He wasn't even Norwich's first choice. Norwich wanted Ethan Ampadu as their mm. holding midfielder, centre-back, um, and he was dithering. So they're like, look, Ollie wants to come. <laughs> so I was like, okay, mm. all right, well, let's go. Let's go with Ollie then. And his character was exceptional, so that kind of made it quite an, an easy decision. And I think I think about the first few games, he was, you know, the, the, the draw at Preston, you know, he gave away the penalty and he, the, someone just ran off his back for the other, for the other goal and it, it finished 2-2 and, you're like, you know, he's a great player, but you know, he's got to, there's a few bits he's really got to learn here. And then as the season came on, he just became so reliable in a position where for Norwich, they needed it. That 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 holding midfield role is so important to what Norwich do. It was a massive weak spot in their Premier League season. Um, Alex Tetty is, 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 a, is a Norwich legend and so highly thought of. And Norwich just couldn't get anyone close to his level and that was it mm. that was a difficulty and an indictment of of Norwich as a club in general because I don't I don't necessarily feel that the recruitment team completely failed but maybe the people that they got in you know Daniel Farker wasn't having and so that makes it a collective failure between them and I'm, I'm thinking of someone like Ibrahim Amadou at that point who wasn't helped by the injury situation and centre-back either so um I think it was a it was an, uh, such an ideal situation for Ollie Skip to throw himself at it. He then thrived at it. He, I thought, he developed as the season went on. In the sort of, he was incredibly solid with Kenny McLean in terms of the coach, the way the team had been coached to to cover off the areas behind the fullbacks and to progress the play. So they looked really solid in sort of the the sort of third quarter of the season. By the fourth quarter, you were getting these bursts from deep that he wasn't really doing earlier. He was really driving the team up the pitch, whereas before it was mostly about his vision and mapping the pitch in his head and knowing how to play a reverse pass into space and mm. and that vision. So then you had this extra dynamic and the penalty he won against Huddersfield was a key 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 to that. He got his first goal as well, sort of in that second half of the season. And you just saw him sort of stepping on again. Now he's so young and he's got so much ahead of him and he's got the right character and attitude that 
I do I do think he's got all sorts of levels and he, he could su- could keep surprising us and just get thrown into the Spurs team and then again just just thrive. You never quite know until someone does it. But I still don't feel he's quite there to be playing at a Spurs team that wants to finish in the top six, top four of the Premier mm. League with whatever the changes are going to be there. Now, it may be an easy win for whoever the new manager is to come in and just go, oh, we'll just throw Ollie in because, you know, he's got a homegrown player there. The fans are desperate to see him play. Um, but, you know, I don't know if he's ready for that. I feel like he needs more Premier League football to to adjust to a different level. He's still quite new. You know, he's at a level where Max Aarons was when he first played in the Premier League and all of those players. And they needed that season of mistakes in the Premier League to to kind of kick on, really. Um so I I do hope that at Tottenham he his personal development path and what's best for him isn't sacrificed because Spurs need you know a, a win a, mm, an, yeah. an easy win and 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 whether that comes with it that obviously comes with a risk and I, again I say it he might be good enough and he might just go look I've got it and away he goes um, and you know maybe part of me just wants him to be back at Norwich next year because I, I fear <laughs> what Norwich have got to do to kind of find another defensive midfielder to replace him because it will be such a key role next year. Um, so it's a tricky one, but I think he's a he's a he's such a good talent, and I think he, just watching him progress over these tw- ten months has been has been an absolute joy. And I think sometimes things just click, and that was definitely the case with with Ollie. Yeah, I mean, sort of from from the sort of the games that I watched of him just um, before before recording this podcast, it was kind of a what you said, you know, early on in the season, it was that mapping out of the pitch. It was, you know, he he had he was the I I hate the term, I absolutely hate the term, but the quarterback of this Norwich team, you know, he was very much, you know, who the, the midfielders and the defenders they knew they could pass into him, and they knew that they would get it back, or they knew that it would go to a teammate. It wasn't as though you know you were putting it into a danger, and you know you could give him all types of passes. You know, hospital passes that he'd you know just recycle and just make safe essentially. Um, so you know, I, I feel like Ollie Skip's kind of been Norwich's bomb disposal expert of of, of their championship title winning campaign because you know the, there was there were a lot of uh, there there were as you said with the defensive midfield hole there were a lot of pitfalls and, and he filled it. Yeah, I think that that's a key point. Really, I've probably glossed over a bit is that his reading of danger was just phenomenal. So as good as he is with the ball and everything can do there, it was really the element without it. And Norwich's backline never really looked exposed, which when they do commit so many players forward has been an issue in the past, and I, I envisage it being an issue again next season. Um, but yeah, his and, and that's I don't know how easy that is to coach. Really, he certainly picked up on it really quickly and. Um, and that's what, mate, yeah, he just, like you said, he just put out fires all over the pitch. And I think he surprised people at Norwich with how well he did it. Mm, yeah, certainly. Um, in, in terms of the the other young players at, at this club, you know, there's, I think, Kieran Dowell's 2023 20, and, you know, he signed a, a permanent deal there. And, and it was one which for us at Scouted, it was a, you know, I'm, I'm quite pleased for him because he had definitely struggled to find a home uh, since winning the, the Under-20 World Cup with England in, in 2017, where he was actually a standout player. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they, they might hear the name Kieran Dowell and go, well, who's that? Well, he won the World Cup with, you know, with, with a lot of these, you know, prestigious England players who've gone on to be big names. But um, yeah, I think... I mean, from again, from the outside looking in, and that's something which I use all the time on this podcast. But from from the outside, it, it seemed as though Norwich was 
uh, oh yeah, why didn't why was Norwich suddenly a better fit than Derby County? Oh, that's because you know there's there seems to be a, a structure in place. There seems to be a very a very amiable squad that he's he's easy to integrate into. Was that was that the case from day one with him, or and and that was sort of represented on the pitch through his performances, or were there a bit of teething problems? Yeah, I think with Kieran, yeah, I, it, for any player in Kieran's position, I just think. I think they must look at, they must be really happy if Norwich come in for them as they are at the moment, because it would strike me as just the ideal place to go, um, mm. especially as your first move out of a big club. Kieran's um, Premier League debut actually came against Norwich at Goodison Park at the end of the 2015-16 season, I think, when Norwich were relegated. Mm. And he, he was so good that day. And I think everyone at Goodison <laughs> Park loved him and now there is a suggestion maybe some Everton didn't really want to let him go and, and Norwich were always delighted that they got him for the value they got him and they they again they've tried to do this Premier League recruitment in the championship almost you know these players have arrived because they're hoping that they will develop they will have developed this season and be able to offer something in the Premier League and it, it will always stick with me um after the Reading game you know Norwich had uh had they sealed the title that day. Yeah, I think they did. And um, it, you know, just speaking to Kieran Dowd about, oh, you know, going back to the Premier League and he was like, his face was like, he could not wait. He was, he was ready for it. And I think with Norwich two years ago, you had a lot of players who were you know about to go into the Premier League and it was a bit like, oh, and almost like mm-hmm. not daunted, but just this, this excitement and unknown and almost naivety in their eyes. I don't like, people calling Norwich naive when they played. I think it was more complicated than that, but but maybe a naivety in the players' minds. Kieran's not naive. He knows what the Premier League is. He just desperately wants to go at it. And it was like this hunger. So I think um <clears throat> I think that bodes really well. He I was surprised how well he was pressing in preseason. I, I thought and clearly Daniel Farker wanted him to do that quite hard and aggressively. Um then in the first couple of league games it kind of reverted back to maybe what I'd seen of Kieran when he played against Norwich and it was a bit more passive and I was a bit like "Mm, I want a bit more here then he injured his ankle in the second game and that was it for three months basically so and it took them took them weeks to get that right so I think what I would say with Kieran is the fact that he played pretty you know religiously for the past two months when he was fit in the number 10 role I think Daniel wanted to give that a give that time to Kieran to really get a handle of the role. There were games where he just drifted and you wouldn't have even known he was on the pitch. Um, but I think, I think in a way that is the kind of player he is, but I tell you what, when he's on it, he scores goals and he makes goals. And, you know, if I think Norwich would take someone who plays at sort of seven out of 10 every week in the premier league, but you might get the odd a sort of goal involvement from him. And, and you, you always know he's there because he's working hard, but this that quality isn't quite there over maybe two or four games a season. And you're like, okay, I think they maybe take that over someone who's going to really impact a really good handful of games and you don't notice him in the others. And b- because Norwich need that, they need they need people who can win them games and really impact them and score goals. They got basically no goals from the number 10 position last time. We spoke about Emmy's goals and lack of those earlier. So at that level, um, so I find him a really interesting one next season because again I'm, I'm speaking. I've done two other Norwich or two Norwich City podcasts, three in fact I think, and they've all been convinced that Norwich need another number ten. And I'm like, no, no, let's see what Kieran Dell's <laughs> got. I think I think there's something there. I think there's a hunger there, and I might be completely wrong. But I tell you what, he's been brought in with that, and I just think I just think it 
it could be something that really brings the best out of him. And I'm sure we, we all hope that is the case because he is a, he's a lovely footballer to watch and he's got, he's got wonderful talent. Yeah, I think he's a he's a he's got a fantastic appreciation of space, and I think that's where those goals and and, and those assists come from. Because all it takes, you know, he may have been drifting through a game, um, and it was similar at the World Cup. I mean, that was the last time I watched him regularly, um, and then a little, little bit after that. But it was it, it was you know he, very similar to it was very Dutch in a way, um, in the sense that you know he'll he'll be in the number ten position and he'll sort of flit about a little bit and maybe do a few little wall passes here and there, but then. At that crucial moment when he needs, when 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 the the, the defense sort of really they, they they constrict towards the byline, and then Kieran's just there in space. He's on the edge of the area, um, and he just takes the ball, either lays it off or takes a shot himself. And you think, you know, it takes intelligence to not be sucked in by that. It takes intelligence to be uh, to, to be aware of where you need to be on the pitch. And I think. He's he's had a tough ride of it, you know, not only with the the number of clubs that he's had to be at, but but also the injuries. So um, to see that Daniel Farker, obviously, we talked about the, that man management for him to have gone, you know, what I'm going to give these two, two months to you and see see what you can do, what can you do to help impact my team here. Um, and yeah, I, I I think we're on the same page in in the sense that I, I I would like to see what Kieran Dahl can do at a Premier League club where he's actually given free reign. I feel like he was. Whenever he made appearances for Everton, it felt like he was on on sort of the. I mean, I've just used reins, but he was on reins like a, like a little toddler or something. You know, he was he was very much he was being sort of. You knew he was going to be hooked back in, uh, and he wasn't going to play for another two months or whatever. And that's not that's not what a young player needs. They need continuity, um, and I think. Yeah, I, th- I think that hopefully he can he can kick on in the Premier League next season. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic segue, if I may say so myself. But speaking of Dutch, the, the next player that I wanted to speak about was was Todd Cantwell because of, um, you know, and, and also, in <laughs> fact, the, the regular minutes. Um, because I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about Todd Cantwell is that he spent uh, some time in the Netherlands with Fortuna Sittard. Um, very similar to how Mason Mount spent time with Vitesse uh, in the Eredivisie. Um, and I think that you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but before he'd had that loan spell, was 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 there was there an impression that he could go on to be, you know, go on to have the influence that he did end up having in the Premier League for Norwich and also this season as well? You know, is there is was there any indication of that beforehand? And also, you know, what is what what's what's the future looking like for him? Because I think for a lot of people, he may have dipped off their radar, but is now sort of reappearing because he'll be in that, you know, the very insular Premier League um, sort of self-interest bubble. <laughs> what a way of putting it. Yeah, I think with Todd, um, I mean, he was always incredibly highly thought of coming through the academy. So I think Norwich always felt they had a talented footballer. I think it got to the point where he made his debut against Chelsea at Chelsea in the FA Cup third round replay. People might remember that. And Norwich went out on penalties, but Jamal Lewis scored an equaliser. Mm. It was live on BBC. And it was Norwich win a transition and mid table and all sorts. You know, there's nothing particularly to write home about here. But Todd came on and he sort of breezed through and had a couple of runs. And you're like, oh, Todd's, you know, Todd's looking all right at this level, <laughs> um, which was the first time we'd obviously it was his debut. So the first time he'd really had a taste of it. Um, and I think at that point, there were people in the club thinking, what are we going to do with this guy? Because he's, you know, he's local lad. He's, he's um, the Durham Deco is obviously his nickname. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. He's nothing like Deco. But he, um, <laughs> he, so that's just 15 minutes basically down the road from Norwich. You know, proper homeboy, um, lovely family, uh, really well brought up, but quite a home bird. And I think 
Norwich are like, we, we need to get him out. We need to get him out of here just to go and grow up a bit. Um, and I think Todd, there was a bit of him wanting to do that as well, but it was a question of where, and he didn't want to just get kicked off the park at League Two in League Two because that would be that basically. So I think it was quite astute sending him to the second division in in Holland because that really, you know, gave him the room to pick the ball up to play it. You watch some of his clips back now, and you can see the short the, the shortfalls in it, but you can also see him just growing in confidence of playing a bit of men's football, but also just the growing up of living away from home and, you know, being in dorms and his television not working and things like that. I think loan, Norwich's <laughs> loans manager, Neil Adams, got a few a few phone calls to deal with a few things. And it was a bit like, Todd, you've got to deal with it yourself, mate. So I think there was a bit, there was a bit of that as well. I think it was, Norwich are quite keen on the holistic approach of their players and, you know, especially in development and their academy and just trying to make sure they're mentally strong enough to deal with what a first team is like. And I think... The way Todd came into that Premier League season was was remarkable because they he went to Vite uh, sorry he went to he went to Sittard and then then Norwich had the season where they won the championship in 2018-19 and Todd was sort of in and around it a lot but didn't really start a lot of games yeah. per se and was quite in and out and he he was really a peripheral figure to them winning the championship and there were three games at the end of the season where Emmy Wendia was suspended surprise surprise and Todd <laughs> came in and he was just basically being compared to to Emmy, and he was playing on the right, whereas he's now playing on the left of the three behind Temu. And um, it didn't didn't work, and he was getting a bit of stick, which I think he probably gets a little bit more because he's a home lad. And I guess you know Norwich fans feel like they they own a bit more of him than they do players who get bought. Um, so it, the fact that he then came in for the Premier League season and looked so good from the moment preseason started, you're like, hello. And I think that was a con- spot Todd spoken about as well. It was a real conscious effort for him to to do that, to really get his head around it and go for it. And I think you saw that then at the start of the Premier League season. I thought he was as good as any player looked, and and probably the end of that season as well. He was taking taking a degree of responsibility when, to be honest, a lot of it was unraveling around him. Um, but I think the speculation that that's really that that's been difficult for him to deal with. I think he'd say that himself and. I think it was quite a confusing period, I think. And then injury niggles the, to the point where you can only really look at probably November onwards to see Todd really stamping his authority on, on a championship team. And I, I think he's been as good as anyone for the rest of that season. Uh, made the position his own. I think he's been helped by having a natural left back of top quality in Dimitri Giannoulis behind him. I think that's made a big difference. And that will obviously be a, a, a probably a dynamic in the Premier League. But again, how Norwich recruit that, whether they look for a bit more pace and experience as well um, in, in one of those attacking roles may mix it up for Todd. But Daniel Farker loves him. He, if Todd's available, he plays him and he, he really does trust him. I think Todd will always work hard and he he can make things happen. I think he likes trusting in what Todd can do in terms of his ability and everything's so natural. I, I find him a really fluid, natural footballer who you you coach the bits of the job that he has to do, but the rest of it is like, I want you yeah. to express yourself. And he's so good in tight spaces. A lot of his game works really well in the Premier League. And I think, I think when he was in the Premier League last time, he'd have probably seen that. He didn't like the idea that people felt he could do it in the Premier League, but the championship would be a bit of a stretch, you know, whether like physically he couldn't deal with it or whatever. He didn't really like that. And I think he's definitely put that to bed now. You know, he is a top class championship player, 
but there are still elements of his game getting out of tight situations you know being able to work the ball in those and having a having having sort of an awareness of well as well of and I think it's an improving awareness of of what to do in the final third um I think does does mean that he can continue to have an influence in the Premier League level. It, it was a bit inconsistent in that first season, but I think the amount he's grown up in this year, that does make it quite exciting. But he is in an interesting situation. He's got two years effectively on his deal. Norwich are aware they are probably going to have to sell someone if they want more transfer money to spend this year. And, you know, we talk about Emmy, and you also talk about who who comes in for these players. You know, it, mm. it will be interesting. I get the impression Todd is really highly thought of and probably doesn't come with the same baggage maybe that, that some people feel Emmy might. So it's 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 always interesting talking to people outside of Norwich as to how they view these players because sometimes it's a little bit different to how people see it, um, see it this side of the fence. Uh, it will be really fascinating with Todd, but he's in a good position. I think if he doesn't go this window, Norwich probably gets to the point where they're like, hmm we either have to extend his contract here or work out what we're going to do. So that, that might be a slightly complicating factor. Yeah, I think purely from a footballing perspective, you know, I think a lot of the time we, I mean, the, the, all this chatter about European Super League and whatnot and UEFA and FIFA making decisions, you know, I think a lot of the time we forget that football is something we're supposed to enjoy. You know, it's an entertainment product. And Todd Cantwell is one of those players who does make you, fall back in love with football you know that Manchester City game at Carroll Road uh, um, I mean it'll be coming up two years now you know that was a, a fantastic game and I mean I can't imagine I can't even begin to imagine what that must have felt like for for the Deerham Deco you know the, the a local boy doing that for his team you know that must have been absolutely sensational um and I think it is a reflection of just the the atmosphere. I mean, you, you say it's always interesting to know what the, the the opinions are this side of the fence. I think a lot of people, yeah, you may say that, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the time when people think about Norwich, they do a, a, a little bit of a shrug. But you know, I think a lot of people uh, they'll they'll say, you know, it's 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 a club which does have a real family atmosphere to it. Um, it, it it seems very welcoming to players. You don't tend to get, you know. Um, I mean, you don't tend to get awful press if you're if you're a player there, and and perhaps you're not playing very much. It seems to be a, a very understanding, nurturing environment, um, and I think that that sort of takes me on to the next point. And I'm gonna I'm gonna mash three young players together here, uh, and that's Adam Ida, Josh Martin, and Andrew Omobamadeli. Um, and you know, they, they, Nor- Norwich have, have a decent academy. They obviously play in, in Premier League two, um, but I, I mean, I'd have to check the table. This, uh, Go, off the bat, I wouldn't know where they finished in in the in the standings this season, um, but um, in particular, think, you know, uh, yeah, I think they had a promising start, yeah, <laughs> and then sort of t- yeah tailed off uh, ever so slightly. Well, I mean, there are teams that lead in there who pretty pretty much practically field a, a, a half the first team some games. So uh, yeah, it's um it, it's a difficult old, old league, but um, those three, Ida Martin and Omar Bamidele, um, you know, they they've. The three names that, again, from the outside looking in, are the ones which which I look at and think, okay, these are these are the players that that have you know good rep about them in in Norwich's academy, and and essentially from 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 watching them, you do get that impression as well. So you, you know, there's you know the, the eye test, the the stats, the the, the reports, the, the local media, everything sort of it stacks up essentially. Um, I think a lot of people may have from the outside may have thought that if if Timu Puki wasn't wasn't retained when Norwich went down that Adamida may have may have slotted in obviously he hasn't had the, the minutes that a lot of people may have expected him to in the championship this season um the other two obviously a little bit younger than he is 
Um, well, I think Josh Martin's the same age, uh, but has again hasn't had that first team uh, exposure to the same extent. Um, but w- w- what is essentially the plan for them? What is the hope for them um, at, at Norwich? Really? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think they're approaching some really important times, maybe some more than others. So, Adam, Adam just had one of those seasons where it just nothing went right. Really, I mean, he scored the last goal and the first goal of the season, <laughs> um, <laughs> but in between, he basically got sent off bit harshly against Wickham had a had a nasty foot injury that came while he was away with Ireland which I don't think Norwich were best pleased about how that was all handled um there was he had covid at one point um and then there was a another injury as as well I can't remember which injury that was so just lots of things that just conspired to write off a season where I at the start of it felt it was going to be his breakthrough campaign because there were glimpses in the Premier League, but he clearly is still quite raw. I think so. I think what he needs he needs to be sat at home, <laughs> and he <laughs> needs to make sure when he comes in in preseason that he has got the mentality Todd had two years ago. That's exactly where Adam Eden needs to be because if he is, he has the talent and the physicality. Yeah. He could be a proper proper option for Norwich, but he has to have that. He's quite a laid back character, um, and. He's at a point now where he's not had a great season. It's not been his fault. He now needs to prove that he is hungry to put that right, make up for lost time, all of the cliches. And, and, and Because I think it is there for him if he does it. Daniel will play him. They want to bring him on. And they do think he's good enough for that level, and which is an incredible vote of confidence in his, mm. in his ability. You think about it, the fact he's been playing for Ireland. I know that's been going pretty badly, but you know uh, that, that speaks volumes. And he's still so young. So he's got to prove that. I think that's why this is an important moment for him because it, it is there for him, but he, he's just got to prove that he's hungry and really, really wants it. So that's a challenge for him, I think. Um, Andrew Omabamadele. Well, I mean, this this is a tricky one because you really don't want to big someone up and just put pressure <laughs> on them. But I have to say, like the way he handled the end of the season is just phenomenal. As a centre-back, I mean... To, to the point where he looks, he look, he looks as comfortable as Ben Godfrey ever did playing in that role. I have to be honest. He, mm. he, his, his use of the ball, he, he grew into it. Um, I think there's just, it's just immaturity things in a way of. You know, I remember Max Aaron's shouting at him at Preston, going, "Well, I won't say exactly what he said, but it was effectively, you need to talk.'" And I could hear him from the stands, and, and it, they weren't the only words used. But it, so it's, it's that sort of stuff that I think he's got to learn. But um, defensively, he. He was so, so calm and measured uh, at a really important time for Norwich. Admittedly, in a good in a good team, um, but really impressive for his first senior minutes at a, at a pretty young age. Um, so you kind of feel like he could be anything he wants to be, but by the same token, you I can't see him and big him up and think he's going to go straight into the Premier League because that is just such a. We've all been scarred by what that level is like for any sort of player. So. It'll be interesting whether he hangs around Norwich for the first half of the season as a as a fourth choice centre back because I do think Norwich will recruit one this window, or whether he goes out on loan. Whether that happens in January because I think, I mean, if I was a Championship club and I was like, I've only got a limited budget for a centre back, oh, I'd I'd get Andrew in straight away because I just think he's yeah. he's got it, and if it's the right environment for him, I think he can prove that. Um, and then Josh is a tricky one because I feel like he was making real progress. I feel like. Norwich really think think really highly of what he's got 
it just sort of stalled a bit. So I feel like he he is also at a point now where I don't think he's going to get the chance here at the moment. I have to say, I think he needs to go away and kind of prove himself a bit, um, which which surprises me a little bit because of how highly he was thought of, say, 12 months ago. Um, so and, you know, Norwich are pretty good at seeing someone. And if if certainly if Daniel Farker feels like they've got it, then they will be given a chance. So I feel like he's probably at a position where he has got probably the most to prove and really needs the games to prove it. Um, but, they're, you know, they're all three are interesting stories. You know, Adam and, Adam and Andrew coming over from Ireland. Um, it was probably about five years ago now. Um, they had to prove a lot and not everyone always saw it in them at, at Norwich. Uh, and Josh was released by Arsenal or, or sort of had to mm. get, get himself out of Arsenal. So, um, and Dan Barden, the goalkeeper, is another one who they've had to follow that up. So Norwich have kind of mixed and matched their actual recruitment in terms of the academy with someone like Todd, who you know was there from the age of 10. So um, it's sort of taken all sorts. But what they've done well is improved the finishing school element of it. You know, I think Norwich have tended to always produce good young players. It's just whether there was a path for them to actually play in the first team at Norwich. And I think they've tried to make that um, make that much more accessible with, I have to say, the help of Daniel Farker, which, as you were saying earlier with Kieran Dow, Daniel Farker plays you, you get the time and you get the trust to have a real, real go at it. It makes such a difference for these young players. I, I, there's not many managers I see who do that, who are also given the freedom to do it, maybe yeah, a true. degree of less pressure on the wins. You know, Daniel Farker isn't going to get sacked because he loses 10 games on the trot because that didn't happen. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that... I think he he can take a lot of credit, but so can those guys for taking the opportunity too and having that nurturing environment to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the finishing school aspect of Norwich is something which uh, it, you know it, it transmits to to other fans of other of other fan bases uh, and and to people who just watch Norwich casually. I think you know there there is a, a feeling that I mean, obviously we, we we touched on Max Aarons before, which was you know Barcelona rumors and whatnot, and you know loan obligate no obligation to buy and whatever it was. You know there's clearly you know there's that's that's not a coincidence that that these young players are obviously thriving in this atmosphere because they're given the opportunity you know Emi Buendia has been there for for two three years now and now he's getting eventually an Argentina call up you know it's because he's been given the opportunity he could have been he could have been anywhere uh, but Norwich has proved to be the place which was which facilitated his growth which facilitated his you know he was given the freedom the 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 ability to to do that and I think that's one of the one of the the great success stories of Norwich is that it has established itself as, as you know, having a reputation as being a good place for developing talent, um, even if it isn't coming through the academy. So I think that's something which will will always be um, be attached to Norwich, especially while Daniel Fark is there. Um, the the other big club figure that I think you know we we can't gloss over. I think we from from the scouted football angle, you know, it it is to do with scouting is, is Stuart Weber. Um, who's of course sort of the, the the director of football? You know, you know, seeing him operate close quarters as, as you will have done. Um, you know, him his his relationship with Daniel Farker, the 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 joined up thinking, the alignment. Um, you know, his vision for for the club, his vision for for the future, um, but also his own future. I mean, there's a lot on the table there. Uh, with Stuart Webber, there's a lot to to get into, um, so feel free to just completely wax lyrical because I'm just <laughs> going to be sat here gawping at how uh, how how effective an operator he is. But there is there's there's a reason why he is 
that in in the role that he is that he's come through you know the the, the positions at was it Wrexham Liverpool Huddersfield uh, beforehand to to become sort of the the transfers chief as as it is at, at Norwich. Yeah, he's um, I, it's really interesting with Stuart Webber because again, I, I've, I've you're right, I've I feel like I know what he's done quite well and and things like that, and it, sometimes you're curious. It's like, well, I wonder what other people who haven't followed it deem that he's done i mean he he did come through these different roles and i remember the first thing anyone said to me about him just before he was being appointed at norwich was oh he's a man in a hurry um which which struck me as an interesting thing to to be said i think the way he picked up his journey is fascinating um it's worth anyone listening to the high performance podcast because i know he did that with jay comfrey and and uh damien hughes isn't it um mm. and uh Sorry to plug another podcast, Joe. Um, but he, um, you can plug any any athletic ones on here as you want. I've, I've had Alex Stewart from from Tifo on, and you know we like to we like to say that um, yeah, get 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 as many recommendations in as you can. I like to think that perhaps people might recommend scouted one elsewhere. But hey, you know we absolutely. can all dream. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, what a man Alex is, by the way. Um, so yeah, it's worth listening to that with, to get maybe a grounding on on where Stewart has come from because he. He's come from nowhere, really, to to really develop this career, which I think ultimately, and you have to sort of remind yourself that when, when you look at what Huddersfield did, that was almost entirely on what Stuart led uh, because he was the defining factor as to how it changed in those few years. You know, it was sort of bumbling along. He got hold of it. They got promoted. He left just before they went up. And admittedly, they did stay up. But I think some of that was a legacy of his recruitment plans and whatnot. And then, you know, it unraveled <laughs> effectively. Um, and I think, and then what's happened at Norwich, you know, it happened at the point where I was watching this team going, right, I'm now ready. Having yo-yoed, I'm now ready for three or four years of complete mediocrity here because this, <laughs> this is a massive change. And the one year I said that, they went and won the championship. It, it, it was ludicrous. I think, um, Stuart, it is his vision. It is the way he he pulls everything together and leads it it's little details like the imagery around the changing changing uh, the training ground walking into a training ground and going why have we got all these you know porter cabins you know why is why has this club been in the premier league for for the last seven years yet they've done nothing to their training ground in 25 years you know what this place is rubbish <laughs> you know it is not a top of the class training ground as i look it why has no one done anything to develop it which you know they hadn't because it had all gone on trying to develop the team and that's mm -hmm. that's so difficult for every team every club that's promoted it's a horrendous situation to deal with especially when you're in Norwich's situation where no one's writing you a check to to buy any players um so that vision probably helps being you know a fresh pair of eyes and going in but not just the vision but they're making it happen you know Norwich re Norwich came up with a way of crowdfunding um, you know, five million quid to redevelop the training ground when they were running out of parachute payments. You know, it happened that they went up and they could pay the loan straight back. But you know, they did they did something at that point when it was the last thing they should have been doing. Really, they should have done it way before that. He had to manage a financial situation that was far worse than he envisaged when he took the job on. To be honest, um, and I think he had some really difficult times. He was faced with the personal. Um, uh, what would you call it? The, the sort of personal niggle in the back of his mind, I suppose. He'd left Huddersfield, who'd just gone up to this absolute mess of a state of things at Norwich. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of personal development that's gone into that. 
but it's, as I say, it's not it's not just the vision; it, it's carrying it out, and it's in, it's probably motivating people to to go and do it as well. I think pro- possibly sometimes he gets credit for everything, and probably being the figure point of it and the driving force for it attracts that attention. You know, he's the one who get who speaks about it, but he's he's actually very good at having the right people around him and they will do things you know a lot of the recruitment work comes from a recruitment team who are are really bright and they know what they're doing and they get the faith from Stuart to then deliver on that so um I think that's what he does I I think you look at a football team on a pitch and you think well the best managers are the ones who have a team that is worth more than the sum of its parts because clearly if you've just got a load of individuals then that's up to the individuals isn't it and I think I think Stuart does that managing a group of people and i think anyone associated with norwich should be hugely proud of where the club is because it just looks so coherent and you know even if they're blagging the plan sometimes it looks like everything has happened (laughs) completely by design but that that comes from the degree of planning and contingency and you know norwich have gone through covid without any kind of benefactor putting any money in and they've managed to ride it out Whereas the only real issue has been the fact that it's meant that they probably have to sell a player this window to have more money to spend in the transfer window. It's not like they've complete, you know, been completely screwed by that 30 million hole, uh, 30 million pounds hole. So, uh, so I just think it's, it's a club in, in his image and, and the people he's managed to work so well with. Um, and this is probably where if we take it right back to the start of the podcast, you know, uh, I see how well it's going and I, I know how fragile these things are. He, he is desperate to make sure that he leaves the club and goes on to do whatever he wants to do next. And I don't even think he knows what that is. Um, although, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't, won't say it because <laughs> he does strike me as a man with a plan. Um, but, you know, it is so fragile. You know, it's going to be a really difficult act to follow him as it will be with Daniel Farker whenever he leaves they both have contracts they are both open about their contracts and they've both been open about the fact they end in june 2022 um i think the hope is now that daniel farker will sign some sort of extension i think but whether that happens how long that is beyond stuart weber being there um is a difficult one because maybe it depends on what role daniel has with the new sporting director and it's it's I, I have no answers. Uh, I don't know if anyone has any answers and it's, that's a difficulty. And that may, in fairness, is probably will be the true sign of Stuart Webber's legacy. And I don't think that would be saying anything he doesn't know himself. I think there's a bit of him that hates that he got helped get Huddersfield to where they were. And then having left probably without a degree of succession planning, because it, you know, he probably wasn't expecting to leave. Uh, for Norwich, you know, six to eight months earlier, um, it just unraveled. And so it was particularly unstable because that's what history tells us now. Um, with Norwich, if Norwich are still, if Norwich still carry all of these values, all of this um, narrative and um, and perception that they have now, if they carry that in five to 10 years time and he's he's been gone, a, you know, for, for a good period of that, I think that would be the, the true legacy of, of what, of what Stuart Webber has achieved. Um, and that's maybe quite harsh because he can't control what people after him do, but they are trying to create these cultures and values across the club that, that do withstand that. Um, so we'll have to see. Uh, but uh, it's very hard to underplay 
what he's done for the football club. And I think um, you listen to the owners, Delia and Michael, talk about where the club is now and all the things they've had to go through in the time they've been um, custodians of the club since 1996, 97. I think uh, I think that speaks volumes for, for everything that's happened and um, what Stuart Webber and his team have achieved. Yeah, certainly. I think it's about, as you say there, you know, just developing this framework, the, the framework that is Norwich City now in, in sort of the, the Weber era, if if you want to say that, you know, that, that carrying that on once he has left, um, because obviously, as you say, he's been open about his contract. Um, he's openly stated that he w- he would plan to move on in future. Um, and from from Norwich supporters that I've spoken to, they they wouldn't begrudge him that. You know, they're they're very they're very open about the fact that he's obviously been massive for the club. But it's about yes, you know, do you? I think there probably is an element, but of with him that he wants to leave the club in in a fit state so that it can essentially be self sufficient even without him. So that the Weber framework can be there, but it can be managed by somebody else, a different body, um, which I think. Uh, the, the Huddersfield example is a very good one because you know the the succession planning that you were referring to there. I think that what it was clear that 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 wasn't in place, and you know the the, the recruitment essentially went to being a bit scattergun afterwards. And you know you get this influx of of cash and maybe a little bit of um, a little bit of term not turmoil but sort of turbulence turnover at, at boardroom level, and and then you know it, everything can be can be scrapped. And you know that that framework. Uh, that that he he built with Huddersfield in the Championship essentially grew cobwebs very quickly, and and as a result, the the club suffered. Um, so I think yeah, it's, he, he's a very fascinating listen, and the, the high performance podcast, as you said, um, it was it was one of the one of the things I listened to to before recording this podcast, before reading up about Stuart Webber, because he is just such a such an interesting guy. Um, you know, the, the, his philosophy, the way that he plans things out, he's meticulous. You know, the whole you know, prior planning prevents poor performance as as a, as a mantra, essentially, I think is something that would would epitomise him quite well. Um, and you know, in terms of footballing directorship, um, he is he is essentially probably I'd say one of the most transparent, but also one of the most effective that, that I think we have in in the current current game, uh, especially in England. Um, so yeah, he's um, he's he's definitely somebody who. If, if he were to move on from Norwich in 2022 or, or, or if he were to get an extension and move on in future, I think any club that would that would take him on would be, um, I mean, obviously you'll know this, but I think from from my perspective, any club who takes him on would be would be getting a... a, a I mean, we talk about how, how players, 30 million pound players can change a team. What about a, a sporting director who can, you know, you can revolutionise two separate clubs uh, and get them promoted to the, to the riches of the Premier League? I mean, can can you put a price on that? I, I, I can't. I mean, it, likewise, both clubs. He's had he's had the right freedom. I mean, I I struggle to think of a club above Norwich's level where he would get the freedom he's got here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he he has had the right environment, and like any player, you know, you thirty million quid player. If they go into a team and and they're not used properly or they can't do what they want to do, it's pointless, isn't it? It's a complete waste of money, and I think. That is why, as I said, I don't even know if Stuart will end up going into staying in football. He might do something completely different. Is <laughs> that sort of a that sort of a character that you just don't know? And I think, um, but I think that that next football job for him will be will be will be fascinating if it comes because um, he you know he, he'll want a bit he'll want a big job, but with big job come usually comes big owners big money Mm. and um you know people don't like you know relinquishing what that brings them which is generally control 
Um, so I think again, it's just being, it's just probably being appreciative of the fact that he got to come into Norwich and literally got said, you know, he asked, well, what do you want? It's like, you, you do what you want, you go and do it, but how you want to view it, do it. And it's again, why there's so much credit needs to go his way because a, he's had the, he's had the opportunity, but he has shaped this almost exactly as he would have liked to, and he's delivered on it. Um, and he's been allowed to do it. Yeah, certainly. I think it's, I mean, we talk about players needing the freedom. I think essentially it's, you know, he has been allowed to build, build a, a club in his own image and, you know, the, the framework, the, the, the evidence is there that he's, he's able to do it. Uh, that's just all about the what we've got time for uh, today as we, we approach the hour mark. But um, thank you again for, for tuning in to the Scouted Football podcast. Um, as I say, I've, if you've enjoyed this episode uh, or any previous instalments, um, do consider recommending us to a friend or family member. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, stick a like on this video uh, as every little bit helps us continue creating content like this. Um, Michael, though, thank you very much for joining me and um, for your Norwich City insight for, for just a very good football chat. Um, where can people find your work? essentially and, and where can people follow you on twitter uh yeah thank you joe it's been great fun um i'm on twitter the handle is at michael j bailey j is in the initial i write for the athletic so um i would highly recommend anyone who likes football to subscribe to the athletic because i have some incredibly talented uh, uh colleagues um so that will be the athletic.co.uk for those in, in the uk and com for those elsewhere i would imagine um and yeah all my writing is on there and that i think that will probably be enough you'll be able to find me elsewhere if you look hard enough i'm sure <laughs> absolutely um lots to look forward to in the coming weeks uh, the way for under 21 european championships resume at the end of may and into early june and um, before the big one euro 2020 kicks off uh, and that should be an excellent festival of football uh, that's all we have time for i've been joe donahue uh, this has been the scouting football podcast stay safe take care bye for now